0: In this episode, I feature conceptual artist Charles Gaines, born in Charleston, South Carolina. He currently resides in Los Angeles. A pivotal figure in the field of conceptual art, Charles Gaines' body of work engages formulas and systems that interrogate relationships between the objective and the subjective realms. Using a generative approach to create series of works in a variety of mediums, he has built a bridge between the early conceptual artists of the 1960s and 1970s and subsequent generation of artists pushing the limits of conceptualism today. He recently retired from the Cal Arts School of Art where he was on faculty for over 30 years and established a fellowship to provide critical scholarship support for black students in the MFA program. A survey exhibition of his work will be on view at the Institute of Contemporary Art, Miami, in the fall of 2023. His work has been the subject of numerous other exhibitions in the United States and around the world, most notably at Dia Beacon, San Francisco Museum of Art, the Studio Museum in Harlem, and Hammer Museum Los Angeles. His work has also been presented at the 1975 Whitney Biennial and the Venice Biennale in 2007 and 2015. In 2022, Gaines produced a new public art project with Creative Time entitled Moving Chains on Governor's Island, New York, along with a music performance and a sculptural installation in Times Square. In addition to his artistic practice, Gaines has published several essays on contemporary art. Please visit CerebralWomen.com to read his expanded and impressive bio. Enjoy this episode featuring conceptual artist Charles Gaines. Charles, I am flattered that you're joining me today. I really appreciate your time. Welcome.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Privileged to be able to speak with you.
0: So when did you realize or recognize your artistic passion? When did you know you were meant to be an artist?
1: Yes, this is a a complicated question because uh, I started on sort of trajectory that you would think an artist would be on quite early, uh, and before I had an idea to, to actually think about what that meant. But uh, some of my things, uh, you know, I, I could draw as a young kid, and uh, when you're in school, and, and I went to an Eastern public school system back in at, at Newark, New Jersey. When you're in school and, and your teachers see that you can draw, they think that you should be an artist. Uh, that, that's, for me, t- today, I don't necessarily think that's the case, but they at least think that you have the capacity to be an artist. And so they encouraged so encourage me to do all of these things beyond things that I did in our weekly art class that we t- took with the art teacher. So I was uh, always making the Christmas decorations and doing the holiday drawing. And the t- teacher told my mom, Liz Cotin, in the fourth grade, that I should be an artist because I would be the first Black artist in the history of the United States. So that essentially shows you... Uh, how there was an environment around me that encouraged me to be an artist. But as far as I'm concerned, I didn't interpret that. It was just something, it was just sort of experience of the young person I was going through. I never thought about what that really meant. I I generally think of myself in those days as being pretty much unconscious, just like going from day to day. And, And that unconscious period, I extend all the way into the time I was probably about 17. So I didn't even think about these things. And, uh, but then when I was in undergraduate school, I had to make this decision to start thinking about a career, which I had never started thinking of before. And, uh, so it was, uh, suggested to me, well, maybe I would like to, to, uh, continue in art and, and, and go to graduate school. And that was the first time I actually had to think about it, especially in terms of deciding which graduate school to apply to. That was the first time I actually said, "Yeah, you know, maybe I should start thinking about what am I going to do with my life, and and maybe it, it should be this art direction." And uh, at that point, it, 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 I was committed to it. There was a reason at that, that point I had this commitment, but I, but at that point, I was committed to it, and uh, I then went to graduate school.
0: Was there a particular artist, a period of art, or a, a work of art that really influenced you? Probably the thing that got me
1: interested in. Going to graduate school was that in undergraduate. We started studying the work of, uh, I guess we, we call it the, uh, the pop artists and, uh, people like Ruschenberg and Jasper Johns and Warhol. But also the, you know, there's that whole group of people who are more related to fluxes like John Cage and, and Bruce Cunningham, you know, not necessarily artists, visual artists, but that whole kind of view of, of uh, of, uh, the new art that Gregory Batcock called, and uh, and that's when I really got interested in the idea of art beyond just sort of making, you know, putting uh, images on on a board. And the artist that really felt, really it for me was Rene Magritte. I saw I saw a Magritte exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in those days, and was you know completely really fascinated. And then the first year of painting that actually was stimulated uh, by the idea of making what we would call uh, an artwork that it came out of my own interest and in, in subjectivity. It wasn't a sort of a, a study or a reflection on so on a previous style to learn technique or anything like that. And proceeded, therefore, making you know, a dozen of the worst Magritte imitations that you'd ever want to see in your life. But my, my family kept one. I mean, I, I managed to sneak most of them out and threw them away. But my uh, family. You know, hid them from me, and 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 over uh, the years, I found that they still had them, and I was aghast. But they wouldn't let me do anything with them. Recently, my son found one uh, that my family kept hidden, and he took a picture of it and put it on the social media. <laughs> I still haven't gotten over that yet.
0: <laughs> so, how did your art professors impact your practice? Yeah, you know, that, that, that's a complicated question too. That
1: I promise you, I'll simplify. I really wasn't influenced by any of my art professors and my art teachers with respect to the practice itself. I was influenced by a professor named Dr. Ziegler, and it's amazing, I haven't thought of his name in years, who was the art teacher at Jersey City State University, where I went to undergraduate school, who introduced me to that group of 60s artists and including the new art people like like John Cage. and. And the ideas around that, I mean, it was uh, my first encounter that the idea of the avant-garde and and how the avant-garde was a a conceptual framework for production and the understanding of art. So Ziegler really introduced me to that. So I have to credit him. There there wasn't any uh, actual artist that uh, had been influenced by or or had a passion for, except for Magritte at, at that time.
0: How would you define your practice?
1: Well, yeah, and, you know, embrace the idea that it is a conceptual practice. I define myself as a conceptual artist. And and pretty much that is based upon the idea that I that rather than the purpose of a work of art to, to produce an aesthetic experience that provide an aesthetic experience for, for others through the art object. But I think a work of art is the purpose of it is to contribute to the, the history of ideas in the world. And uh, so, so, I pretty much felt that the personal subjective experience that one has about a work of art actually contributes nothing to the history of ideas. It's what you think about that experience and how and what it... That allows you to start thinking about how that experience might contribute to that history. And conceptual art was really the only first practice that allowed you to think about art as a a construct that engaged in dissipation or the communication of ideas in the world. And, And by that virtue... That it is part of the collection of knowledge.
0: So, when you're creating, how hard do you think about whether or not the audience will understand your work? Do you think about the audience while you're creating?
1: Well, to, to the respect that I that I personally think that I'm participating in a set of uh, discourses around art and and its role in society. That whatever I'm making as a work of art, it, it has the intention to contribute to this idea of, in one way or another, expanding our knowledge and expanding the value of culture and society, that I'm participating in that discourse. I'm not saying, it will be, or I'm not presumptuous to say that I'm actually producing something that has that value, because I, I don't know, I can't determine that, but I do hope that that's what I'm doing. So to that degree, I'm not thinking of a particular group or a particular audience. I'm thinking much more broadly with respect to that.
0: Do you listen to music while you're working?
1: Oh, well, <laughs> you know, I was up here in the studio and my assistant came up and said, I can't understand how you can listen to MSNBC and stay sane. And I say, well, you know, I really don't listen to it. I, it's sound. So I, I'm used to working with sound going on around. It, it could be spoken or it could be music. But I have this obsession with MSNBC simply because there's some really terrible things going on in the world right now, and uh, I, I wanted to see what a certain level of culture is of dealing with it, and, and and so that kind of program helps gives you the information. And what that has to do with actually making work, whether it's going on, it's a, a sort of an environment. You know, I, I I listen to it and I don't listen to it while I'm working on the, on the work. The only time that I don't do that. Is when I'm trying to actually be focused, like reading a really hard book or working through some complicated problems. And in that case, I, I pretty much like it to be silent. The music that I listen to, if it's not MSNBC, is you know jazz and classical music. Both uh, forms I uh, have an intimate relationship because I was trained as a musician and, and I have a terrific love of music. Uh, you know, I was a professional drummer in my young years, and I went on and, and, and played percussion and, and contrabass and, and uh, community orchestra. I got to learn music theory that way, and so I had this deep passion about music, particularly those two forms, but I like you know, all, all music. So, so I'll, if I'm not, not
0: listening to MSNBC, I'm
1: listening to either some jazz or, or, or some classical music.
0: Well, I'll be honest. My background noise is Bloomberg News. <laughs> oh, that feels so much better. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, it just gives you snippets of news, and it also, it just provides some insight and information about sort of everything that's going on in the world, you know. But, no, that's my background news, and half the time I'm listening to it and paying attention, and the other half I'm not. Yeah. So how do you keep learning?
1: Well, it's part of, actually, part of my practice, based upon the idea that as an artist you have to constantly try to seek out spaces and frameworks that other uh, otherwise are left to your own devices that are unavailable to you that are beyond your imagination and uh, for me uh, mostly I mean, it's sometimes to so other works of art or uh, but but it's, it's mostly about engaging in one way or another the other entirely separate different disciplines their own history of practice uh, to take myself out of that you know, sort of framework the, the, let's say the art framework
0: do you feel black art can be defined? well no I mean it's it, it's a kind of uh,
1: there is a way of, of just saying that black art is art that's done by somebody who's black but i'm I'm uh I think that more seriously I think that it's like saying that Uh, It's trying to define what what, what one might say is a Black experience, which is, if you think about it, is very difficult because Black people come from a variety of different experiences. But saying that, you also know that being Black in society is different from being white. And so the idea of a Black art is caught up into that milieu. So on the one hand, uh, one side of it is is an idea of art that comes from Eurocentric, from Eurocentrism, which calls it a universal practice where issues like identity and lived experience are not supposed to play a part. The other side, side of that is that art is a cultural practice where the very content and the means of production is inevitably part of a narrative that comes out of your lived experience. So, if if you if, uh, to give you an example, if if I was a, uh, a white artist who painted orange rectangles in my practice, you would think that well, painting orange rectangles has nothing to do with the lived experience of the artist who paint who paints those uh, rectangles, you know. Uh, or if I take, especially if I were a black artist who painted orange rectangles we would say then that the orange rectangle is a universal concept or a universal, a universalized image that has nothing to do with the, cult, the either cultures of blackness or whiteness. But what I feel about it is that it's that you reach a point in your practice that was, helped, was defined and shaped and framed by the experiences that you've had up to that point. And so that the black artist gets to the orange rectangle through their lived experience of being black, which means that that, that that orange rectangle means something different than the white artist who makes the orange rectangle from the lived experience. And this is based upon the idea that the lived experience, not only the two artists, the black and white artists is uh, different, but, it, but that lived experience is heavily informed by the social political framework Within which they developed. And uh, so, so to so that extent, the idea of the relationship of the cultural experience, the lived experience of the artist is to- totally linked to the whatever that artist made. But it doesn't define what that artist makes. So rather than saying, well, a black artist in some way has something to do with the expression of blackness or the, the citation of black historical facts or cultural facts in white art, which separates it from, from, from white art. And, 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 and by saying that it gives it to a little bit of a problem, which happened to me where 60 years ago, I was accused of making white art because I, I didn't make culturally identifiable work. So, so, so that creates a problem if you try to say there's such a thing as black art. But uh, but on the other hand, if you understand that all art is culturally informed and framed and shaped by the experiences you've had in your lived experience that brings you to that point of when when you start making something, then you can see how even if the black artist is making images of landscapes that you would identify with the Hudson River School, that that means something different. And it's placed in the world in a context that's different from one of white artists. Because I'm bringing in all of that social, political, cultural information in the consideration of the work.
0: So over the years, how has your technique developed and or changed? Well, my technique, uh, well, technique itself, I mean, the common notion of technique is that there
1: is a, a skilled use of materials and their application. that comes from a training or a description of the material application that's employed in the making of a work of art. And to that degree, my, if, I, if you take that, those definitions, then in that, in that sense, uh, my technique has never changed because it, it came out of the, the very same ideas that produced the work. In other words, what I do in terms of the use and deployment of materials and compositional strategies, what we might call compositional strategies, came into being when I created the concept that I wanted to work with. And therefore, those things are unique to me. And and therefore, as long as my ideas, I can continue employing those ideas, then the technique won't change.
0: And when you choose colors, what is that process? Your choice of color.
1: As you know, in my work, uh, what, what I do is I grid out the shapes of trees, and the shape of the tree itself is visualized or seeable, viewable because the, the cells of the grid are painted particular colors. I work in series, and so I will have, for example, eight trees that I'm working with in a series, where I I will overlap the shape of each of those trees one at a time in the course of the series. My interest is to make sure that each tree that I use is visible even as the series proceeds. For example, if I overlap eight trees in the series, I want the viewer to be able to separate tree number one from tree number eight. And you're looking at an aggregate image that's made with eight trees. You can tell that the particular tree and their entry into the series by its color. So I wanted to use color as a kind of color filing that will help you identify, just like in office work where you, where you may put you know documents and, and code them according to color files. I, I, I use color for that reason. And uh, so the only decision I make in terms of selecting color is that in the series, each color that I use in the series is different enough from the other colors so that you can always find them. I won't use two colors that are too close together, or I'll never use the same color to designate two different trees. Uh, There's not an aesthetic judgment made in using color. It's only uh, for the purpose of documenting the differences between trees. It has an aesthetic effect because colors simply produce sensory experience, but that aesthetic effect is not an intention on my part to produce. There is not an intention from my part to produce that effect. It's just the consequences of, a, of its use. I mean, it's like if you go to, it's never, know, if you, you look at a tree, you might find the tree a, a, a beautiful form, you know, and this is a, an example I'm giving about how I use color. I mean, if you, or how aesthetics operates within my work, even the work is systematically produced. So you might see a tree and you might think that the tree is is beautiful, which is an aesthetic judgment of of the tree, but that's a judgment that you make. But the tree in this formation, this creation, has no intention of being beautiful. So that's uh, how I like Like the colors. I have no intention for those colors to look beautiful. They just are.
0: What do you feel is the purpose of art?
1: I think uh, I I mentioned earlier on that I think art is a very complicated cultural project, which is obvious. I I don't even need to say that. But in in terms of my interest, I discovered that I think that the purpose of a work of art is to contribute to the history of knowledge. And this is a, a ideological position I came to in order to address a prior ideological position, which is the purpose of art is to have an aesthetic experience for its own sake. Not for not for any instrumental reason. So you know that people go to museums, galleries to look at works of art in order to look at an object that was that was made simply for the visual experience of producers, which is different from a car. You might find a car pretty beautiful, but it was also it's a tool. I mean, it's also an object that has a function. But a work of art. Has the aesthetic properties of a call without, without having a function. Now I was very much opposed to that theory of art. And I wanted to, to say that art has a much more important role uh, in culture and society, and that is that, like other areas of knowledge production, like we find in the not only in the sciences, but in history and, and in philosophy, that art is Also, a participant in that whole process of of accumulating knowledge, of acquiring knowledge about the world in order to expand our experience of, of being alive in the world.
0: There's a generic question that I ask artists. I know it doesn't apply to you, but I'm going to ask you so you can educate me and help me understand your process. And the question is when do you know when a work is finished?
1: Well, in terms of individual projects and working in series, that means that there may be, there are a number of individual works that make up the series. The final number of works is arbitrarily determined, determined by maybe the exhibition situation. You know, for example, a gallery may be able to uh, handle 10 works of, of a particular size, and so the series will be 10. In another situation, it may be 20. So with respect to when a particular body of work is finished, that number is arbitrary. Now, the, the the question is usually asked with respect to people whose work style is more of a process. That is that a painter, for example, you know, faces a blank canvas and over time realizes or articulates an image. And that process of, of, of revealing that image is a slow process where the artist is constantly making decisions. Objective decisions while they're executing the work. So usually then the question is, when do you know you've done everything that you can for the work that you shouldn't do anything more? Uh, that's a question that doesn't apply to me because that's not the way the uh, work comes together. It really quite, since the work is system, systematic, the end of the work is the end of the, of the series. And the end of the series is uh is determined by these quite sort of pragmatic concerns. Now the pro- but nevertheless, if I have time to, to go into this part of it, uh, the experience that, that I described earlier that artists have in the evolution of an object, you know, that, you know, revealing to their imagination an object from a blank canvas to an, a totalizing image. The, the kind of joy, if they have joy, in that process, that's not something that is outside of my experience, too. Because the only difference for me is that I only see those things when the series is over. It's not a part of the process of evolution. When it's over, then I see those things, and they're always a surprise. It's almost as if somebody else made the work, because I can see how the system's making decisions and making That produces certain results and effects that I become quite surprised to see and often quite enjoy as if I imagined them. So that, that, that part of the joy that painters have and sculptors have in, in molding and shaping, that happens to me too, except that for me, it's something that I don't think I did. It's something that is revealed to me by the system.
0: So thank you so much for your time. This is going to be our last question, and you've sort of touched on it, but as an artist, what do you want your impact to be? How do you want to impact the world?
1: Uh, Well, that's just a terrific question. I mean, I think it's our ambition that the work of art, you know, not just matters to ourselves, but matters to others, that that in some way that contributes to the understanding of others. And, and, you know, that's, that's sort of a difficult thing to say because it smacks of arrogance, you yeah. but it is something that, uh, and it's it a high hurdle to jump over, but it is really bad. That's what one hopes, and that's what I hope. The problem is that you have to accept the fact that you might fail. That, that's the difficult part, but that's what you hope.
0: Well, thank you. It has been an enjoyable conversation, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Charles.
1: All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks Podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.